Today's episode of The Metrospective is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. McCarthy, Tim Britton on the latest episode now of The Metrospective, our 68th episode. We've named it for Ed Charles. You can hear the reason why at the end of our previous podcast. And uh, obviously, look, it's this pause as we all wait for baseball to ramp up at some point, we hope, here in the 2020 season. But the Mets still busy behind the scenes as uh, we're joined right now by Dan Kaplan, sports business reporter at the athletic and uh dan first of all how are you doing how are you holding up uh i'm doing as well as one could hope for living on the upper west side of manhattan i have two kids wife we're we're all healthy and uh in fact funny story i walked a mile to whole foods today and i was in my mask and and gloves and had my athletic uh jersey uh hooded sweatshirt on and i got stopped by someone who it was a recent subscriber and couldn't go- stop going on how great it was. And he had his mask on and his gloves on. And there we were in front of the Beyond Meat discussing the athletic with our face masks on. That's awesome. Now bonding bonding moments. Oh, we need these things as uh, you're walking around here or there. The, the one time a week or so that you actually get out of your apartment around here, it seems, to, to do some food shopping. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, Dan, as you've reported uh, at The Athletic, the Mets still trying to sell the franchise in the midst of all of this. How do you describe how this global pandemic has affected what has already been a pretty complicated sale process for the Mets? Well, the fact that they are still at this point trying to sell the team uh, it really tells you all you need to know. Uh, they they clearly thought they had a deal with Stevie Cohen uh, back in the uh, midwinter. We all know that fell apart because of dem- demands from one side or the other over who would control the team during the first five years after the transaction. But I cover one of the things I cover at the Athletic is uh, business deals and business deals in sports, whether it's team sales or other companies, have all but come to a halt with one or two exceptions. And you talk to bankers in this space whose jobs their whole lives have been to sell sports teams, sports assets, things like that. It's come to a complete grinding halt. But they continue to receive calls from the Mets investment bankers seeing if they have buyers for this team. Yeah, what what does that tell you about the urgency to sell, whether that's because of, you know, we've heard about behind the scenes issues with the Wilpon family and Saul Katz and and, and kind of trying to get the... uh, the long-term future of the franchise secured and how much of it might be about their own financial uh, situation right now? I think it's likely likely all of the above. We we do know that there is disagreement between the limited partners, the Katzes, and the Wilpons over the future ownership of the over the team, and that's in part what led to the the the, the prospective sale and this the situation where the Wilpons wanted to hold on for five years while the team was in Cohen's hands. And um, 
clearly there are financial pressures all teams are facing. But remember, the Mets also have a lot of stadium debt uh, on the team with uh, City Field, and they have big payments coming up there. So that's another factor. It's also they they have uh, the majority stake in SNY, the regional sports network. But as probably most of the listeners know, that business is not very good. As people get rid of their cable subscriptions, the value of RSNs, regional sports networks, have gone down significantly. How about those stadium payments that the Mets might have? Are those, as of now, still expected to be paid as scheduled? Or is that something that maybe there will be some flexibility on considering this situation that we all find ourselves in? Well, one would expect ultimately that would get negotiated uh, and there would be a delay in those payments as anyone who has loan loan outstanding, whether it's a mortgage or a personal loan or if it's a corporate loan like this, uh, the situations are different and the, the lenders clearly have to take uh, note of that, but that's going to be between the Mets and their and their lender. How the heck do you even value a franchise right now in any sport, considering that there is so much unknown as to when we might be able to have sports back in any way, shape, or form? And then that second step of actually having crowds come in and, and have people in the stands, which is a, a big part of your uh, income. Well, it's, I have a story coming out in the next day about what we can expect in terms of ingress and egress into stadiums and venues when we finally get back to sports. And that whether that's in a few months or next year, uh, it's clearly going to be like a post-9-11 uh, dash of cold water on the face. If you remember before 9-11, there was almost no security to go into stadiums. The concept of of metal detectors emptying emptying your pockets, uh, electronic magnet wands, uh, cameras everywhere. That that would have been science fiction. I think we're le- heading somewhere in that direction. To get talking, heat trackers will tell stadiums if someone has a temperature. It could be turning over medical information to make sure you, you've been tested for COVID-19. There's a whole host of fa- new stadium security protocols that we'll probably be facing so and that will probably serve to limit the amount the number of people in attendance there may the, the teams may not even want to fully sell out the stadiums they may want to space out fans in the stadium so the economics the uh the the game economics it's certainly going to take a hit even once this is over and we're allowed to go back out of the fresh air you had reported even before kind of all of this all of this delayed the sports world that you know Steve Cohen's presence as kind of this stalking horse in the negotiations had changed the nature of of the Mets trying to sell the team how how much of a factor is he still uh, lingering in the background of of the Mets attempt to sell this team I don't think there's any doubt he is that 900 pound gorilla in the background uh, the reason that it was given that the that the deal broke up was the Mets wanted a five-year grace period in which the Wilpons would continue to uh, continue to own the team and make the decisions even after he had made his payments. Uh, the deal fell apart, and the new deal being shopped is an instantaneous uh, turnover of the team to the buyer. So the question a lot of these investment bankers have that I talk to and their buyers have is, if that's the case, why not just sell it to Stevie Cohen again? Um, and there's a lot of speculation that he burned bridges, he hurt people's feelings in MLB at the Mets, but 
he clearly is the best buyer here in terms of his personal wealth, his personal connections to the team. He grew up a Mets fan. So uh, if, if you're a buyer of this team or prospective buyer, you have to worry at the end of the day, Stevie Cohen's going to come in and outbid you. There really haven't been any other names that have come up publicly. Do you get the sense that there is a lot of interest in buying this franchise from people that have the capability to do it? Well, before the pandemic uh, caused the market crash, there was limited interest, and the limit and the interest that was there was somewhat scared by the Stevie Cohen um, hovering in the background. Now there's almost no interest. There was the report that Alex Rodriguez is trying to put together a group, and while people laugh at that, you know, Derek Jeter did put together a group to buy the um, the Marlins, but that was for a far lower price, and this is expected to go. Uh, if the price were to fall precipitously, it was supposed to go for 2.6. If this fell by a billion dollars, which who knows what the values of these teams are, are now, then it's potent- potentially someone like Alex Rodriguez could be a front man for, for an ownership group. What do you think the, the timeline on this is now for, for the Wilpons? Do you, like, would it be really surprising to you if they were able to sell this team to Steve Cohn to anyone before we had baseball back or in 2020, uh, in the calendar year? Is there, is there any kind of timeline for them at this point? Uh, it depends on what price they're willing to take. If they dramatically lower their price expectations, given the circumstances, I, I think they could probably find a buyer. Uh, but my guess is, as you, as you know, know well, the, the Wilpons, uh, I, I can't see them dropping from $2.6 billion, at least not right away. Uh, they say, I mean, they, they put out the message that they don't have to sell. There's no pressure to sell. But as we discussed earlier, that may not be the case. We're talking with Dan Kaplan, sports business reporter at The Athletic. Who, who might Steve Cohen have to smooth things over with if he is going to reemerge as a, a player in this thing? Well, cl- clearly there was, at best, a misunderstanding over what it meant. For, their, for him to buy the team, but for the Wilpons to run it for the first five years. Um, the, these leagues have very strict uh, regulations about ownership of the teams, who, who makes the shots. All, all four of the major leagues, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, NFL, and NBA, there can only be one control owner. And it appeared that Cohen was trying to get around that issue, that he wanted to, he wanted to you know, pay, n- not pay the full amount right away, let the Wilpons say they were in control, but actually call the shots. And that is, that, that's a big no-no. And there was, there's been speculation I've heard that MLB was not happy with that. Clearly, it fell apart with the Wilpons. The Wilpons are a popular family within MLB ownership circles. We, we saw that when they had the Madoff mess and Bud Selig allowed them to continue to own the team, even though they had to, uh, you know, sell, sell pieces of the team off to afford payroll. It's uh, it's interesting as this continues to play out, and obviously Mets fans, I mean, they've been waiting for an ownership change, many of them for many years now, at the very least, just know what the day-to-day is going to be like uh, you know, for this franchise. It's been holding over them for a long time, and unfortunately continues. Dan Kaplan, sports business reporter at The Athletic, covering this, and uh, be sure to check out his story coming out on Friday on what the future of sports, the near future, uh, might look like uh, at games, which uh, sounds very interesting. Dan, we appreciate the time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Dan. Okay, take care. And Tim, that is 
kind of a, a strange idea, right? Imagining, and he made the apt comparison to to post nine eleven. Could you imagine, you know, taking everything out of your pockets every time you go to a sporting event, and now you might have that other added feature of temperature taken and, and things like that, so that we could all be in a group at a game, and it's just all of these consequences of this and and that would be on the minor side of it obviously in the middle of this uh global pandemic but there are all these wrinkles where it's not just going to be boom you get over the hump and everything goes straight back to normal there's going to be a a long adjustment period for a lot of people to figure out in a lot of different ways and obviously impacting our sports world yeah you know there there are events in in life that you know you always think of when are we going to go back to normal and you slowly come to understand that that normal's gone <laughs> um that that what was normal previously we're not going to get all the way back there uh and with with even even in the sports world and, and the September 11th comparison is apt for the security uh at games and events um you know the the idea of temporal thermometers and and temporal scanners and that kind of thing uh, at entrances certainly is not what anyone wants to hear, but you, you understand the guidance behind it for a time, but it, it could become kind of a longer lasting thing. I think what, what's interesting is to watch uh, in, in Japan and Korea as they're trying to bring baseball back uh, in the month of April. You know, you've got a team in Japan that a, a couple players have tested positive uh, in the last week. I think the Hanshin Tigers, uh, they're still trying to, to to ramp up and, and play, I think by the end of April to have opening day there. And, you know, you read about, well, what's going to happen if we, if we start baseball back up in July or August and two guys on one team test positive, does that team just stop playing? Like what, you know, what are the uh, guidelines that might be in place for that kind of return and, and that kind of scenario, which, you know, might be inevitable. Yeah. You would think uh, this virus would blow through a clubhouse in in record speed. I mean, we know you know teams usually once a year have a problem with the flu, with a number of players being sick, and uh, I believe the statistics are this is more than twice as contagious as the flu. So you think about that, you could have uh, maybe not entire teams, but big chunks of rosters be ill uh, for you know weeks at a time. So yes, I mean, and that is something that would be a consideration. I know in China, they wanted to get their basketball association fired up by mid-April, and they have now backed off of that. And it is unknown when that will start up. But yes, uh, baseball, hockey, football, all these leagues are watching what's happening on the other side of the globe and some countries that have perhaps uh, you know, knock this down a bit and to see how it plays out. And thus far, there's not a whole lot of good news on that front. There are certain times when you don't want to have to go to the doctor's office to get help for a medical condition. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as soon as possible. So that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you could cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com slash Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's 
GetRoman.com slash Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. Uh, On a a much lighter note, which we could all use, uh, of course, Wednesday was April Fool's Day. It was tamped down a a little bit. But one of the the great all-time April Fool's jokes, the Mets were in on. They were in on the joke, not the joke. How about that? Uh, And you wrote about this, and the legend of one, Sid Finch, had the article in Sports Illustrated. The Mets, Jay Horowitz, very much involved in this. Mel Stottlemyre, the... Pitching coach at the time, I mean, all the way through the organization from the top on down. How did the Mets and Sports Illustrated pull off the idea that there would be a a man on the other side of the world with a 160-plus mile-per-hour fastball who's debating whether he wanted to be a yogi or or potentially uh, show off his physical skill set in Major League Baseball as a Met? Yeah, you know, I I knew I had read the story, uh, the George Plimpton story about Sid Finch before. Uh, you know, at a time when I knew it was a hoax, uh, I'm I like to think I would not have fallen for it because 168 mile an hour fastball is just too much. But uh, I'm probably gullible enough to have, have bought it hook, line, and sinker, uh, especially as a Mets fan growing up. Uh, well, so, you, how about I as think, a reporter? I mean, the reporters I mean, were angry that they weren't tipped off that this was a a real thing and that Sports Illustrated got the story. Well, the the thing I didn't realize was to the the extent to which the Mets kind of propagated it because Sports Illustrated presented uh, the Mets with the idea. I think that they presented it to Frank Cashin, who was the general manager at the time. Uh, and it, what helped SI was was Plimpton was the author and he had a relationship with Nelson Doubleday, who was then one of the owners of the Mets because Doubleday owned a publishing company that had published Plimpton. Uh, and then Frank Cashin was friends with Mark Mulvoy, who was one of the editors at SI. So they had these connections that, that uh, you know, the Mets agreed to the project in a way that, you know, I don't think a lot of baseball teams would agree to to have this fake story about a fake prospect uh and then the mets you know when they had uh i talked to lane stewart uh, who was the photographer for the story and joe burton who played sid finch in all the photos uh when they went down to spring training you know the mets arranged for them to they they created this batting cage with a canopy around it and they staged all these photos of, of Sid Finch sneaking in and players walking out. Ron Reynolds was the backup catcher. He's got a photo of him holding his hand because it hurts so much from catching him and they burned a hole in his glove uh, to, to, to as evidence of how fast the, the Sid Finch was throwing. They had you know Lenny Dykstra coming out and saying, oh, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Uh, so they had, you know, the, all this access to the facility to really perpetuate what was going on. And so, you know, when I talked to Jay Horowitz, he's like, yeah, the, the beat writers were not happy with me. The beat writers, they were, they were upset. The Mets had sent out a press release that said, you know, we invited Sid Finch to camp. He throws 168 miles an hour. And I'm trying to imagine what my response would have been like as a beat writer, you know, in the middle of March, because they, they did all this in like March 15th, 16th, 17th, that area. You know, you're not thinking, oh, oh, it's probably just an April Fool's prank they're setting up for or something like that. It's, wait, what? What's going on here? Uh, and you can imagine what New York tabloid editors were like when they're reading this story in Sports Illustrated. I thought it was interesting. The photographer, Lane Stewart, said one of the reasons he thought so many people bought into it, because he, he, he was thinking beforehand, there's no way anyone's going to read this and believe it. There's no way anyone's going to read about a guy throwing in one boot uh, 160 miles an hour and believe it. But he's like, you know, if you're, you imagine a reporter reading this, 
you're not going to read these minor details about, oh, he, he's deciding between being doing yoga and playing a French horn and playing baseball. You're scanning right past that stuff, and you're seeing Mel Stottlemyre, Mets pitching coach, saying all these things about him that, you know, Plimpton kind of put in his mouth. And that's what the kind of the professional class in baseball, you know, you had general managers who fell for it, who were calling Peter Uberoff the commissioner. You had people talking about moving the mound back because this was going to change the game so much. So for, you know, 24 to 48 hours, this was an absolute frenzy. Uh, and the Mets, you know, Jay was still laughing about all the things they did to kind of perpetuate it back then and called it as, as much fun as he's had as a PR guy for New York. It's amazing. And, and I've known of the legend of Sid Finch and and until I read your story I didn't realize just how much the Mets played this up I, I thought this was something that just kind of appeared in Sports Illustrated as a goof and kind of went from there but they they obviously went out of their way to make this a thing yeah I, lo- I love the story Joe Burton told uh was you know the, the he came back down on the actual date of April 1st the story came out I think like March 27th or so uh, and by you know by April first, everyone knew that it was it wasn't real. Uh, but they had him kind of standing there and, and saying that he had decided not to pursue a career in baseball at the at the time. There was still a chance in the future. Uh, but but at this moment, he was going. You know, baseball was too deceptive a game uh, because of the curveball and the slider and all that. Uh, and as he's walking off the field, you know, he's walking behind Gary Carter. Uh, and, and Joe Burton, the guy who played Sid Finch, was a huge Cubs fan uh, and was really interested in seeing Mets camp as a Cubs fan and seeing all these guys up close. And he was, you know, Gary Carter, you know, the Cubs had won the East in 84. Gary Carter was a, a real threat to the Cubs in 85. He was wondering what this, this Mets team would look like. Uh, and fans are asking for Carter's autograph. And one kid who had just gotten Gary Carter's autograph gives the ball to to. Joe Burton, Sid Finch, and says, hey, can you sign it? And he's trying to explain it. No, you don't You don't want my signature on this. is Gary Carter. You don't want this. And Carter just turns to him and goes, Sid, sign the ball. Uh, and uh, he was just like, yeah, so someone's got a, a baseball out there with Gary Carter and Sid Finch. God, he never signed Sid Finch before. I hope he signed Finch it, before. Sid Finch. Just kind of, yeah, he just kind of made up a signature on the spot uh, and has used it a lot in the time since. I'll tell you what, that's that's a memorabilia that, that would be fun to have. Is a baseball signed by a bunch of the mid-80s Mets, and then Sid Finch is on there. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> Thought he was fake. And No, no, I got his autograph. I saw him face-to-face. So, um, you know, one of the, the great April Fool's Day hoaxes of, of all time, the Mets, uh, very much involved in all of that. And, and this is kind of what we have right now, to go back into the past and relive some of these stories, some of these fun things. I know uh, we just did that last episode with Bobby Valentine, who was terrific. If you missed it for any reason, go back and and relive some of the big games uh, that Bobby Valentine managed. He talked very much about the challenge of managing Mike Piazza, calling it as big a challenge as any manager has faced to have a, a catcher uh, that can be as dominant as Piazza and trying to figure out, all right, when do you... You know, put your foot on the brake or off the accelerator a little bit and give him a day off and keep him above water, as uh, Bobby Valentine put it. But uh, really interesting stuff, so you can check that out. Uh, But also, Tim started a a feature going back in time and watching an old Mets game. So uh, on Tuesday, we'll do it. You'll do it every Tuesday on the Athletics website. Uh, you get a chance to to go back, and you went to the Benny Agbayani game. He's kind of got a couple, I feel like, that we could say the Benny Agbayani game, but the one in Japan and the big moment uh, against the Chicago Cubs. What, what was it like 
reliving that rewatching a game from you know about 20 years ago now yeah you know it's strange just the the, the broadcast feels different and just you know there are no saber metrics in the, in the broadcast at all that they're talking about it's just very straightforward batting average home runs rbis uh you know, I liked it. Rick Reed pitched that game, and I, I, you know, before Rick Reed threw a pitch, he was called the poor man's Greg Maddox uh, by Bob Brenly on the broadcast. Uh, so I appreciated that callback to Rick Reed's unofficial nickname. And then the thing I had forgotten was, you know, right at the start of that 2000 season, uh, Agbayani and Jay Payton were kind of fighting for a roster spot, let alone for playing time in the outfield. They both came off the bench in that game because the Mets outfield was was Ricky Henderson in left and Daryl Hamilton in center and Derek Bell in right. Uh, and then you looked at that team by the end of the season when they're playing in the World Series, it's a totally different outfield. It's it's Agbayani and Peyton and Timo Perez. Uh, so there was, there was so much that changed over the course of that year for that outfield. The infield stayed intact outside of Ordonez at short, who made a couple of uh, fantastic plays in that game. It is it is fun to watch Ray Ordonez play defense, even if he did actually make an error early in the game. But, uh, you know, there was so much flux with that team's outfield. And Agbayani and was, was one of those guys who stepped up not only in that game with the Grand Slam in the 11th inning, but throughout the season and then, you know, had another Benny Agbayani game come October uh, against the Giants. Now, that 2000 team, when you go back and look at the box scores uh, in the World Series, whatever it might be, it's like, how the heck did this team make it to the World Series? Like, uh, when we were talking with Bobby Valentine, he said that 99 team, he had far more confidence in that group on a day-to-day basis. In 2000, it just seems like it was uh, smoke and mirrors when you go back and look at it. Kurt Abbott is at shortstop. You mentioned Timo Perez, and we thought at the time maybe Timo is a budding star, and that wasn't the case. But uh, so many names in a lineup that just, it's not World Series-esque, especially for that time period. Yeah, you know, and that was a team that, more so than the 99 team, was carried by its pitching. Because even 99, you think, you know, okay, Leiter and Reed, and Kenny Rogers was very good for them the final two months of the season. Uh, but Leiter wasn't as good as he as he had been in 98 or would be in 2000, you know, the, the game in Cincinnati accepted. Uh, so, you know, that, that top of the rotation with Leiter and Mike Hampton coming in, uh, I'd forgotten that Mike Hampton walked nine guys in his Mets debut, by the way. Uh, I, I knew it was a lot. I didn't know it was nine. Uh, that can't be that fun you to had those two, You had those two lefties at the top, uh, and that's one of the main reasons they were a different animal than they were in, in 90. Or, you know, actually, they, they won fewer games in, in 2000 than in 99, but it was a different kind of team. And, you know, the main thing is they didn't have to beat the Braves. Like, the Cardinals did the dirty work for them in that division series, knocking out Atlanta, sweeping Atlanta, I think. Uh, and then the Mets only had to get by St. Louis rather than the the kind of uh, the arch nemesis in Atlanta. The San Francisco series, to my memory, was more scary because you had to deal with Barry Bonds and John Franco at a big strikeout, one of those games, and the former Met, uh, Jeff Kent. I mean, that lineup was absolutely loaded. That division series was tough, and you had Bobby Jones throw the game of his life. Yeah, I mean, that that was, you look at, uh, they, they had lost game one of that series to LeVon Hernandez. Uh, and then game two, Benitez gives up the three-run homer to J.T. Snow in the ninth inning. And I don't know how you felt as a fan watching that, but I remember, you know, I was, my parents wanted me to go to bed. We're, I was getting all ready. I'm like, it's bottom of the ninth. Alfonso had, had pushed the lead to three in the top of the inning. Like, this will be easy. Uh, and then Snow hits that home run. My, my dad's like, well, you got to go to bed now. And I was like, you, you can't do this to me. 
Uh, and I, that, I was saying that to him and to Armando at the same time. Uh, and th- like that, I, I thought that was it. Like they were done. Like there was no chance they were going to win that game. And they came back to win it in the, the 10th, I think, with Jay Payton. Uh, and then obviously Agbayani in, in game three is the hero and Jones in game four. That was, you know, that the Giants had some good teams even before the 0-2 team that just mm-hmm. couldn't do it in the playoffs. You know, they lost to, to the Marlins in 97. They lose to the Marlins again in 0-3. Uh, some some really good regular season teams that just didn't put it together in the postseason outside of the one pennant in 02. Yeah, and that 97, that was a huge upset when the Marlins were able to beat the Giants. So, uh, you know, all, all part of what they dealt with there in San Francisco. But obviously, once they came around the other end, they got all their World Series they needed in the uh <laughs> 2010 12 14 seasons but uh next episode will be our 69th episode of the Mets now this is the first time we've reached a number Tim no Met has ever had the good humor to wear at number 69 has never happened thankfully if we start looking at the seasons that 69 was a pretty good year huh yeah, I suppose that's a good workaround. I, I'm trying to think, has there been anyone in Major League Baseball who's worn that number, at least recently? Because uh, I, I can't think of anyone who has. Um, I wouldn't in, think in it's a go-to of, number. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder if they have that kind of sense wonder, of humor. <laughs> uh, so I, I think, I don't know if we can pick a, a single individual off of the 69 team. I think you've kind of got to go with the whole group of them, the whole Miracle Mets uh, and what they were able to do in turning that season, uh, t- turning around from seven seasons of pretty woeful baseball uh, and coming out of nowhere to go from, I think, what, 73 wins in, in 1968 we talked about last episode to 100 regular season wins, uh, the division title, and then uh, a remarkable postseason sweep of Atlanta, and then taking out the 109-win Orioles uh, in five games, just a uh, a, a crazy, crazy story that I don't think has been topped in Major League Baseball in the 50 years since. Well, I'll top it right here. The Not one player wore number 69 last year. Mm. That's a big story to me. <laughs> well, we'll see who the first person to cross that Rubicon is. Oh, now I want to go back and see how far do I have to go. Okay, two players wore number 69 in 2017. I'd have thought the poor guys would have done it. Uh, Danny Ortiz of the Pirates and Eric Skogland of the Royals. Hmm. There's some trivia for you. Yeah, gets exactly <laughs> yes. that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll honor the uh, the '69 World Series champion Miracle Mets uh, with our next episode coming at you on Tuesday morning. Our thanks to Dan Kaplan, the outstanding sports business reporter here at the Athletic, and uh, Tim. We'll talk soon. Adios.